Welcome back to the Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast, where we aim to bring you the latest evidence and research to enable you to perform at your best, prevent injury, and recover well. The Perform, Prevent, Recover podcast is brought to you by Southern Suburbs Physiotherapy Centre. I'm Anthony Lance, physiotherapist, co-founder of SSPC, and your host for today. Thanks for tuning in to episode 23, where I get to continue my chat with sports physiotherapist and ACL guru, Mick Hughes. If you haven't already listened to episode 22, it's probably best that you click back to that one first, as it'll make a little bit more sense to get that background information that we talked about last time. In episode 22, Mick discussed topics like why the ACL is such a critical ligament, why the rates of ACL injury and reconstruction are increasing so rapidly at the moment, what makes females so at risk of ACL injuries, the reason young kids are also suffering more and more ACL injuries, how we diagnose ACL ruptures, why no pain after an injury isn't necessarily a good sign, and a whole lot more. But what he does go on to explain in this episode are further topics like, is not having an operation an option? And how do we choose between operative and non-operative surgery? Mick also talks about why putting off your reconstruction for a short period of time might actually be really beneficial to you. We'll talk about whether the ACL can actually heal itself after a rupture, operations and rehabilitation in kids. We'll talk about how critical the rehabilitation is and what it involves. And Mick will also run through his famous ACL rehabilitation guide and talk to us how we can prevent ACL injuries in sport. There's stacks to get through, so we'll get straight into part two with ACL physio Mick Hughes. But just quickly, if you haven't already hit the follow button on our home site, please do so, and then you won't miss any of the great topics we've got coming up. Let's pick it up with Mick talking about operative and non-operative options after the diagnosis of an ACL rupture. And there's been, um, uh, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, the surgery and non-surgery thoughts these days, but I think I've got at least a decade, probably a decade and a half of age um, ahead of you, so um, as into the older side. So, um, you know, I think back to when I first started and, uh, you know, 30 years ago, you'd got these uh, guys or, or girls Monday morning and you had suspicion and you just referred them to a surgeon and a couple of days later they had an operation and mm. about 15 years ago you got them on a Monday morning we had the advantage of an MRI we sent them off to a surgeon they still had an op within days now it's more become we get them on Monday we'll send them from the for the MRI but it's not such a given that these people will go and have a reconstruction. So can you talk us through some of the factors that are considered in the surgery versus non-surgical decision? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Look, I think I still think the surgeon, and I'm a huge advocate for a collaborative approach here. I, I, I certainly don't hold on to my ACL patients and, and hide them from the orthopedic surgeon if I'm the first person that they're meeting in the in the treatment pathway. I mean, more often than not, I'll, I'm I'm probably still and it might be different in your clinical setting, Anthony. But in mine, I often get them after they've already had the uh, 
seen the GP, had the MRI, and 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 actually have already met the surgeon. They're coming to see yeah, me right. for, a, for, a, for a non-operative um, discussion. So for me, it's the other way around. It's probably often the last voice they hear. But those who are you know listening who may meet the person for the first time and they are their primary care provider, you know, from the outset. Yeah, I still think it's important that you do include, absolutely include the surgeon in the consult. It's um, it's yeah, it's just having that that discussion early, like you know, to say, look, you know, especially if the person is you know really fearful, worried, and wants to have some you know really informed decisions here. I think it's important that you do talk about the non-operative you know strategies here, but and give them as much information as possible. But in terms of the the indications for surgery, absolutely. If there's a um, if there's a, a repairable meniscus that and a cartilage injury, like a loose chondral injury that that can be you know screwed back in or screwed back down. If there's a meniscus injury that can be repaired, they they certainly trump a, a lot a lot of these um, non-operative choices out there because ultimately cartilage and meniscus is key for long-term knee health and and function and quality of life and all these things into the future for this this young athlete uh, or or older athlete. So they kind of, you know, they're the important things to look out for and, and, and especially tears in the medial meniscus. They're, they're the ones that it's the medial meniscus that's really, you know, important for, you know, it's medial knee joints, the, a big weight bearing surface compared to the lateral side. And, you know, speaking to a few in reading a few papers most, you know, and speaking to a couple of surgeons, I'll probably leave a cup, you know, the lateral meniscus tears, you know, alone, you know, if they, if they can. Um, rather than try and do anything with them, chop them out or stitch them back, you know, if they can salvage it and stitch it back down, great. But um, it's the medial meniscus tears that are really important to, to manage as well and manage appropriately. So they're, they're kind of the big the big ones that would, you know, trump any, you know, non-operative decision. Um, we still we still want to, um, you know, rehabilitate as much as possible to get that knee strong prior to surgery. But certainly they're, they're two big main indicators there and of course a fracture too you know there's a fracture in there too that maybe um is been is displaced and and needs to be um screwed back into place in the right spot then then once again that that's an important feature there for us to respect and then age yeah so age yeah certainly the younger the younger athletes we, we want to make sure their their knee health is is really really preserved and and those um, surgical indications would certainly ring true for those younger ones. An older athlete, we've probably got some, probably some discussions there with with the surgeon to say, you know, is this something that that would, especially like a, a cartilage injury there um, or a meniscus injury, uh, are these likely, yeah, are, are these surgical indications? You know, and this is where from a physio point of view, you know, it's it's not a, our area of expertise here to be making these decisions. That's where it's the surgeon, surgeon's decision to be coming along and, and and really giving their input here. But certainly the older ones have probably got a, a bit more wriggle room to maybe go on a, a um, an extended rehab plan first to see if they can get the knee settled. But the young ones, you, you just worry about these young ones with no frontal lobe that go out and do silly things on an unstable knee that that's the problem with age and maturity you know a lot of the older ones with an acl injury and some severe concomitant injuries they they might slow down and 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 be a bit more conservative with their management early but the young ones that they just they don't really um, want to slow down and they are they often need to be forced into slowing down via surgery in some of these cases but yeah that 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 would be certainly the the main indications for surgery 
Yeah, okay. And we see, I think another thing that's changed a lot is the rate at which people are having reconstructions after injury because we, we, we seem to, well, we know how important prehab is, um, so the work you do before the operation. Are you finding you're putting a lot of, if people are thinking they're going to need the surgery, are you suggesting that they put it off for a period of time versus get the next available appointment? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I strongly encourage all my ACL injured patients, and even if they've got initially these thoughts of going down a reconstruction pathway, I, I certainly try to drag out rehab for at least three months. It won't always be the case. Some some people want to be back as soon as possible, as soon as possible back to sport. They've got really tight timeframes through their semi-professional careers. I mean, I, I don't work in you know club anymore. I don't work at an AFL level or a netball stand, you know, high-level netball standard anymore. That would be very different to some of those elite guys and girls who would be, you know, ACL injury operated two days later, and and that you know probably predictable timeframe to return to sport in a in a seven to 12 month window for most elites, they're, they're back onto the road to recovery. Whereas the non-professionals, and this is where I kind of define it by, if you're not getting paid to, if you're not getting paid to train or play, then you, you know, you're not, a, you're not semi-professional, you're, you're still amateur and you really need to strongly consider your treatment choices here. And that's where I, I strongly advocate for a three month minimum to for a couple of reasons to, to obviously get strong get that knee calmer get the swelling down get the quads on get the hamstring strong get the range of movement back get get strong prior to surgery but also to let the dust settle on that acl injury and and not make really short um sharp emotional decisions about your treatment choice and give yourself three months to really sit and reflect about is this what you really want is this reconstruction in the next 12 months, something that you're up for, because it's going to be hard. It's going to be lengthy. It's going to be costly. Do you have it in you? And a lot of people make those emotional decisions in the first couple of weeks after their ACL injury. They always say yes. But if you give them three months, you know, they start to have a bit more perspective on things and start to think, okay, maybe I can, um, maybe I might just keep going here a little bit longer and, and try and make some you know better decisions later. The the benefit of doing that is is twofold because you know if they get strong and fit leading to surgery and they do still want to have surgery at the end of three months, they're going to be fitter, faster, stronger from it. And they'll be they'll they'll bounce back a hell of a lot quicker post-operatively too. So they they should be able to hit some you know nice predictable milestones after the reconstruction's done. What, we, what we're starting to see also too in a very small population, when you let someone recover for at least three months and rehab them, some of them are actually starting to heal. I've seen in the last probably, you know, in the last couple of years, I've seen at least a dozen ACL healers, not, not copers, not people who have still got an ACL tear that have magically, um, you know, able to cope and land and pivot and twist and control their bodies greatly without an ACL and that can go back to play because there are those that population of people who can. I've seen a very small population of ACL injured patients heal where the ACL injured stumps have reunited either in the mid portion or at the proximal attachment where they most commonly tear. Now, because they've waited three months, biologically, they've allowed their body to at least give themselves a fighting chance of that to occur. Most people who have an ACL injury, if they jump the gun too early, they give them no chance at all. They, they have surgery within two to four weeks and 
surgery's done. There's given themselves no chance in hell of being one of these lucky ones. I don't know what the percentage of people would be that can heal. It's probably less than 5%, probably less than 2%. Um, but they do occur. And, and my the way I frame that to my, my patients is give yourself a fighting chance. I can't guarantee it'll happen. And I'll actually say it's a very low chance it will happen, but give yourself a fighting chance to see if you can be one of these lucky ones to, to see if you can heal. If you can't, no worries. You're either going to be a copa or you're going to have a reconstruction. So give yourself that time. That's, yeah, that's my, yeah. It's a really fascinating um, thing that I, I think certainly in the past we never thought could happen was that ACL yeah. to, to heal. But but as you said, we're seeing evidence of it. And, and I think it's a good segue into when we're discussing the non-surgical approaches that, you know, people expect if they've got a hammy or a calf injury that there's a risk when they come back that they're going to restrain. They sort of accept it. And it's a bit easier because worst case scenario might be another three weeks. But what, are people, what people don't really know, and I think as physios, we're probably not good enough at discussing when we're laying everything out for mm. our patients is that, you know, the stats tell us after a RICO that uh, only about a third are going to return to their pre-injury sport and yeah. one-fifth of them are likely to re-rupture and that half of them are probably going to go on and get some OA in the yeah. knee or some yeah. arthritis. Now, we're hoping that will get better, but it's not as simple as it sounds that having a RICO no. uh, carries no risk. No, that's right. And that's that's the way I, you know, when we have these non-operative discussions, it's kind of unfortunately for the athlete that has an ACL injury, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. You know, like if you want to go, you know, if the ACL injury itself is going to be a catalyst to, it's a trauma to the knee. And so that, that knee then is going to unfortunately go remodel and it's going to have a, an inflammatory environment there in, inside the knee that lends itself to the development of knee osteoarthritis over time, you know, plus or minus a meniscus injury that might have occurred at the time and that big bone bruise that allows that evolution to occur. And that's, that's you know, a, a big thing. And you, you know, then combine that with, you know, the graft failure rates and the contralateral injuries that are out there, you know, like these these things happen after an ACL injury that, off, um, you know, they, they they often don't get talked about in our, you know, you know, discussions about ACL injury and returning back to sport. Um, so I think it's it is important that we sort of paint out that non-operative uh, rehab is certainly a choice for people, and we know that some people can go back to sport without an ACL. That they that probably the risk of re-injuring their meniscus and cartilage is going to be up there too. Um, if they were to choose to go down that pathway. But we often forget that the reconstruction isn't perfect. The, the reconstruction absolutely carries uh, risk. You know, people still tear meniscus. And they still have um, cartilage injuries after a reconstruction. Obviously, the grafts can fail and, and the osteoarthritis development over time, you know, is just as bad as what, as what someone is if they're, if they're going down a non-operative pathway too over time as well. So over the course of 10 years, you know, the ACL injured patients are probably going to end up at the same point, whether or not they have a reconstruction or not. It's just, yeah, look, it's just, a, it's, it's hard. It's, a, it's hard after an ACL injury. And I think it's hard as clinicians to try and really spell that out to the patient. But importantly, you know, it's tough for the patient to, to know what is the best treatment choice for me right now, knowing that 10 years down the track, probably not going to look that great for me, but that's where, you know, as we, we know, high quality rehab is, is a must regardless of the treatment choice to really improve those post-operative outcomes or those post-injury outcomes. 
two, five, ten years down the track. Um, but yeah, it's important that that clinicians have those discussions to say, hey, look, if you're going down the reconstruction pathway, absolutely fine. But you know, look, there are some risks that that occur with that as well. Yeah. Okay. And look, I think we're. I mean, we're both involved in a in a good research project out of uh, La Trobe at the moment, where we're hoping that you know, just said a really good rehab of, and which we'll get into the rehab now, is really going to help us reduce some of these stats. But just just to finish off on on young people and the the surgery versus non surgical choice. Yeah. How young is too young for a Rico? Like, what what's your thoughts there? Yeah, it's um, it's tough. Like, I know I've. I've looked after a couple of patients who are 13, two third. I mean, in, in, I've not seen them now because the city in the city, it doesn't really lend, lend itself for young kids to come and see me after school. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, but in the past, I've looked after two 13 year old boys who both injured their ACLs, who were by far and away the youngest I've ever sort of rehabilitated. I, I, I don't know if they're young, young's young. Like I, I don't have an age to sort of say, the problem is with the young ones is trying to slow the young athlete down without an ACL is incredibly hard for what I mentioned before. These young kids have just got no brain development to, to know the you know, difference between you know, risky activities and not. And being young, all they want to do is run around and jump around and thrash their bodies around and have fun. And, and to do that without an ACL is incredibly risky. When I mean, you can brace them up and you can do whatever you want to do, but ultimately, they're, they're probably still going to be, you know, if they've got an ACL deficient knee, even, even in a ROM brace, they're going to have some degree of movement there that can have these instability episodes. So I know some surgeons will wait until the growth plates have covered over um, and are fused up and then they'll reconstruct. But I know some surgeons that are comfortable in, in doing an ACL reconstruction on the um, immature skeleton and the immature athlete who, who who've growth plates have not fused over yet so it comes down to the surgeon's experience and their technical skill on i guess when it comes down to do we reconstruct this 12 year old kid who's still got a bit of growth and maturity to go or do we wait you know a couple of years until they've got a bit taller and, and bigger in their bone developments there knowing that that two-year window is going to be pretty risky for them to, you know, sustain, possibly sustain some, you know, meniscus or chondral injuries there that would be far, far worse off for them in the future than reconstructing right now. Yeah. It's, a, it's a really tough, a tough one. one. And that, that is a huge, and I'd hate to be making those decisions as a parent or as a surgeon, as a physio to help them sort of, you know, make those decisions. But sorry, what about what is left to us then, which is the decision on return to sport? Do you take, again, there's a theory that kids should be, closer to two years do, do you take yeah. longer with your young kids than your more mature athlete? yeah after reconstruction yeah absolutely i i certainly you know anyone under the age of 20 i i and non-professionals too i really i really push for 12 months minimum and and ideally try and squeeze that out to 18 months it's hard to do that because the young athletes are 10 foot tall and bulletproof and you know they've ticked off the 12 month mark and the surgeons discharge them from their care more often than not by 12 months. And so they're, they're sort of sitting around thinking, you know, why do I have to wait another, you know, 12 months to go back to sport? I know there's that, you know, that paper by 
uh, Tim Hewitt. Tim Hewitt's been a, a fabulous uh, researcher in the ACL world that's, you know, suggested that we should be encouraging two years with our young under 20-year-old athletes. I, I, I get that argument, the biological argument, and, and the fact that within two years upon return to sport, that's when we're seeing our 30% re-injury rates in our young athletes. I kind of get that. But I also... Uh, I guess that what isn't often spelled out very clearly when we sort of look at the data out there is what's the rehab quality like of those individual athletes over that, you know, first all important 12 months. And we look at the data, a lot of that data, to be honest, comes from America and the American healthcare system for, for rehab post ACL reconstruction sucks. Uh, often these they're, they're often it's insurance company driven they they basically will fund acl rehab for you know twice a week for six months and that's it so a lot of these kids are being discharged from physio at six months and when they have their discharge testing i'm not sure what the conversations are being had but they don't have now access to any ongoing supervision so they often get tested and and some kids will do well and you know, some will pass the test, so to speak, but they are far from one biologically being ready, but two, you know, probably physically being ready to return to sport. But unfortunately, they get this message to say, "Oh, you've, you're discharged from physio. You've you've ticked all your boxes. Go back to sport." And you know, being America, they want to be fitter, faster, stronger, and you know, be the 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 first athlete to get back to sport at six or seven months post-op. And we know that's just a recipe for disaster. I think in Australia, we do it better. I think our sort of our, you know, probably our insurance systems probably a little bit better. Um, our access to physios and, you know, exercise professionals is probably a little bit better, especially here in Melbourne and some big sort of metro cities is better. And certainly our, our sensibility, I think, in encouraging longer rehab times and not, you know, trying to rush back to sport. I think that's not in our culture to be, you know, back at six months. I think our culture is probably a little bit aligned with let's get you back minimum nine months. But ideally in our younger athletes, I, I really try to drag that out to 12 months and, and uh, return to sport after that. But I think two years is probably a little bit too hard. Yeah, um, I think I think it makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. But I think you'll be up against it to get that buy-in from the from the athlete and their parents and their coaches to to wait two years. I think twelve months is uh, the bare minimum for our young ones, and and any any time after that's a bit of a bonus from a physio perspective. <laughs> time to take a short break and mention Southern Suburbs Physiotherapy Centre, who bring the Perform Prevent Recover podcast to you. Established for 24 years and with two great clinics in East Bentley and Parkdale, Southern Suburbs Physiotherapy brings you everything you need to keep yourself in top shape, whether it be for sport, for chronic health or pain conditions, post-operative needs, or just to be your best in life. Our clinics have a number of very experienced physiotherapists, all with special interest areas that help cover any injury or condition that you might need assessed and treated. And working alongside our physios are podiatrists, massage therapists, myotherapists, and dietitians, meaning you can get access to a multidisciplinary team care approach for all your conditions and needs. SSPC also runs a busy schedule of classes, including Pilates, Glad Strength for Arthritis, Strength and Conditioning, and ACL Rehabilitation. Take a look at all our services and skills by typing in www.sspc.com.au 
into your favorite search browser. But for now, let's get back into episode 23 with Mick Hughes and keep talking ACLs. Let's talk, I mean, this is the thing with um, the rehab and this is where we get our chance to shine as physios and where I think we've got so much better is the work that you and Randall have done and the guide that that so many of us use that has gone very much away from a time base, you know, like you have reached three months, you can run sort of thing has changed yeah. so dramatically because of your work. Do you want to just take um, the listeners through what, what sort of structure they're going to get when they come to clinics like ours or come to you and, yeah. and follow this rehab guide? Yeah, yeah, sure. And so the, the guides really, as uh, as you said, Anthony, it's it's designed to really, um, really sort of set goals and almost like exit points from one phase to the next rather than having, you know, like, a, you know, when you have an ACL injury and ACL reconstruction, you know, you know, it's probably going to be closer to 12 months, but how do you, and how do you know that you're progressing from one step to the next? So that's what we've tried to really design is a really clear, defined five steps for you to get back to, to sport. So we've got note that first stage. Well, we've actually got a preoperative stage too, but you know, that's basically getting you ready for surgery, making sure you, you're fit and strong and you've got some basic measurements there that we know will benefit you post-operatively as well. But We've got that post-operative stage, which is essentially phase one, where we set some targets for you from a range of movement perspective, a muscle activation perspective, and a swelling perspective. And those three goals there allow you to move into phase two, which is really about developing your strength, your, your balance, and your muscular control. And once again, that process there takes as long as it takes, as, as did that first section. Some people will get through that first section and, and it'll, they'll have their range of movement, their swelling and their quads switching on nicely within a couple of weeks. Some people will take six weeks for, for those things to occur. So it sort of takes that arbitrary time value out of it, which can really frustrate clinicians and patients because if you're driven by time, if you're a bit slower for whatever reason, you get frustrated and you start getting angry at yourself or, you, or your physio because you, you feel or you believe you should be um, a little bit ahead of schedule or you know, you're worried that you're not doing as well because of time, whereas... We know each individual athlete will have different processes and different experiences. So that's why this criteria-driven program is probably, is, we think is better than, than these arbitrary time value ones. And so then, then that next phase, we've got strength goals that we want you to hit, all right? And so by the end of those phase, we want you to be ticking off some really key um, strength metrics, you know, for your quads, your hamstrings, your calf, your core, balance, before you move into running. Because we know when you run, jump and land, we need you to have a basic level of strength control and coordination. So we always sort of think about what's going to happen next, okay? So as, as you move through the strength phase, and once again, it takes as long as it takes, it could take two or three months for you to tick off all those five or six goals at the end of phase two. But we know we want to build you up for running, jumping and landing, all right? And that's phase three. So we then, at the end of phase three, we've got some exit criteria before we start thinking about, all right, now we're going to get you to return back to uh, sport, okay, training and training in sport environments. And so then we've got our hop tests and strength metrics there before 
um, we give you the full full clearance and then we've got a you know, maintenance program there that we want you to conduct. So you won't find in these programs specific exercises for you to do, but what you will have is you'll have all these checklists of goals at the end of each phase, which, which is good because it gives you variety in the things that you do rather than following a, a bland protocol of exercises of, okay, we're just doing squats and lunges. What it does is allow the clinician to really pick and choose what exercises they do and they give to the patient based on their patient's preferences or their patient's training environment to still allow them to still pass the test at the end of each goal. And that's ultimately what we want to do. We're trying to set people up to pass the tests at the end so they get familiar with the tests along the way so they can tick all those boxes and really achieve that, that good optimal outcome at the end. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's the, the Melbourne ACL Rehab Guide in, in a nutshell. We, we've sort of got a criteria-driven plan to get the best out of our athletes to you know, get them back to sport in a timely fashion, but also to have, have them back at a sport with them, have them back at sport with a much less risk of re-injury rather than following arbitrary time values. So I think goal driven or the criteria driven um, outcomes are fantastic because it gives us something to give the patient to aim for and it helps us design our exercises and time sort of doesn't matter really, which is fantastic. But look, the other thing that I want to chat to you about quickly, and then I've got a couple of, of finishing up questions. Um, the other thing that strikes me about your program, which has certainly changed the way I treat people because I think back and think, oh my God, it's almost like you just said, I used to get people, and this is years and years ago to six months and think, well, we just got to wait six months till you can come back because of this time-driven goal. Yeah. But the big thing that stands out in your program and your guidelines and your outcomes is how strong people need to be. And I think back, no, we weren't doing anything like this because you're almost too scared to put people through it. So yeah. I want you to put your exercise science hat on here here and again we look back and most people will go into the gym and do three sets of 10 at a reasonable weight but the strength that we need people to achieve is really significant isn't it and it's not just a three sets of 10 in the gym scenario yeah exactly yeah so you think about you know when someone cuts and pivots twists and lands like those forces and those ground reaction forces that that person is going to encounter especially on one leg you know, you've got a dynamic netball athlete who's jumping, you know, 50, 60 centimetres in the air to catch a ball and now they're coming down on one leg. So, you know, and that athlete might weigh 80 kilos and that that one leg, especially the quad unit and the glutes, you know, that are going to be decelerating and controlling that knee, they've got to be incredibly strong then on that one leg. And when you combine the downward forces and upward forces, they're going to have forces that in, into their body, you know, that are going to be two to three times their body weight, in, in some cases up to five times body weight, depending on how dynamic that activity is. Now, we don't need that athlete to lift five times their body weight. In, 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 you know, that's, that's impossible for most, you know, athletes. And, but to have their strength standard to a high standard that, you know, we're setting, you know, these benchmarks of, you know, the person being able to do a, you know, a single leg leg press one and a half times body weight at one section of the rehab guide at that latest stage, we're asking them to sneak up to 1.8 times body weight on a single leg leg press or a double leg squat or a trap bar deadlift. Those high level strength targets are certainly protective of future soft tissue knee injury risk and sorry, you know, knee, knee injury risk, but also a, a, you know, a vast majority of other soft tissues as well. And that's been looked at a couple of different studies in the past in, in elite performance that you know, when someone has got those high levels of relative body weight, you know, strength relative strength to their body weight, 
that it's a, it's a protective factor for future injuries in a vast majority of different injuries. So that's why we have set those high standards to, to account for those really dynamic forces that the person will encounter when they play elite sport. And once again, unless, you, unless you're really challenging that athlete along the way, measuring those strength metrics, we don't really know where they're at and how safe they'll be in the future. So I think those having, having those high standards is really, really important. And comparing our athletes to healthy, normal athletes too, just as a bit of a segue there is, you know, even our hop tests and, and our strength, you know, if we're doing an isokinetic strength test for the quads or the hamstrings, or we're doing single leg hop test data as well. And this will probably be an evolution of our Melbourne ACL rehab guide as we looked upgraded and turn it into a 3.0 in the next six to 12 months as well. We'll not only use our limb symmetry index as a bare minimum, but we'll also want to have their hop tests relative to what a healthy normal athlete can do as well like an acl injured athlete just because they've had a reconstruction i don't believe that they should have you know five percent taken off or for us to feel sorry for them and give them a you know yeah it's okay yeah that was a pretty good score but good luck you know kind of thing they absolutely should be put to test and be at a standard that is comparable to what normal athletes can do that have never injured their acl that'll absolutely help protect them in, in years to come as well yeah, okay. And I think another stat that you bring out, which again, if anyone needs incentive to get strong, it was for, and we talk about limb symmetry index in terms of measuring one to the other. And for yeah. every 1% you are down in, in strength below 90% of the other limb, you're a 3% extra yes. risk. And, and you put it, which really hits home that if you're 10% less, that's a 30% greater risk. Yeah, so if your quad quad strength symmetry is at 80% limb symmetry index, so if your right quad is only 80% strong, 80% strength of your healthy left quad, you've got a 30% chance of re-injury, uh, knee re-injury when you go back to sport. So, you know, it's, it's, that's, it's huge. It's huge. So that's where, one, you know, strength certainly matters and setting those bare minimum benchmarks of 90% limb symmetry on strength tests and hop tests really will reduce that re-injury rate or that re-injury risk down to as low as possible. We will never eliminate risk when it comes to ACL or yep. knee re-injury risk upon return to sport. And unfortunately, I've seen it myself this year. I've had three, you know, three athletes re-injure their grass. All young athletes, young female athletes return back to sport. All have been back to sport 12 to 18 months. And unfortunately for these young girls, they've, they've, they've done, it again, done it again. So we, we can't eliminate risk down to zero but we, all we can do and make us all sleep well at night is if we um set these high standards and we'll probably take the risk down to probably about five you know five or ten percent in our athletes but we will never be able to take it down to zero but you know as close to zero as possible is better than not measuring at all and probably having that re-injury rate up around the 30 percent mark in in some young athletes yeah, absolutely. Well, look, we better wind it up. I've got a couple of specific questions you can answer as yeah. quick as you can. So, um, Mick, what's the average time frame you're seeing with your average person in recreational sports? So we've mentioned that you know there are no time frames in the in the guides we use, but what are you? Is it is it twelve months still? Is that what you're seeing? Yeah, yeah. I um, I am generally seeing in my population probably between twelve to eighteen months returning right. back to sport. Yeah, and I mean the last couple of years have been really unusual, and and for a lot of these ACL injured athletes, due to the fact they haven't been able to play sport, drags that out naturally over time. But uh, I'm seeing more more 
of the patients that I'm seeing are returning back to sport between 12 to 18 months than 9 to 12. Knee extensions, I know it's one of your favourite things to talk yeah. about. So, And it's interesting, we had a patient um, just this week that's been told not to do it for nine months post-op. So again, yeah, in right. a nutshell, can you uh, assure people that it is okay at certain times yeah, to do absolutely. some of those exercises? A- absolutely, and 100% safe um, in the right fashion at the right time. With the, the reasoning being the quadriceps are the most important, single most important muscle when it comes to ACL rehab outcomes both um, in short-term, long-term outcome measures. And the whole, I guess, the argument against it is that there was always this belief that you're going to stretch and strain the ACL. Um, what we're starting to discover is that even basic activities that we encourage people to do early, such as you know walking <laughs> post-ACL reconstruction, they, they strain the ACL more than what our commonly used exercises do. You know, we're talking about, you know, a squat, and a lunge and a leg press, those kind of activities, and even an open chain knee extension exercise within a certain range, they're, they're going to strain the ACL less <laughs> than walking along yeah, right. over ground. So there, there's certainly that kind of perspective there that needs to be taken into account. But the reason why open chain exercises are important throughout ACL rehab, especially early as early as possible in a safe way, is that your standard exercises like your squats, your lunges, your leg presses, they will, a weak person that's got a weak quad that's affected by pain and swelling, that person will go searching for the, for the strongest muscle nearby to do that work if their quad is weak. And the hip is going to be the, the easiest muscle and the strongest muscle that isn't affected by the surgery that the person will use. And what they'll end up doing is they'll end up just dumping all their load and their effort into their hip for a very long time, which ultimately underloads then their quad. Knowing that the quad is so important to help shock absorb and protect the knee and for future joint knee health, the quad needs to be worked in isolation. And that's where the knee extension work done at the right time, the right angle, the right range of movement, the right strength is absolutely safe if we do it sensibly. So my, my rule of thumb is, is in the first four weeks, I, I'm comfortable in doing an unloaded knee extension where the person's sitting on the edge of the bed and just simply working against gravity. There's going to be very, very minimal stretch or strain or problem on the ACL, and it'll be much, much less than what we're doing is when we're encouraging them to walk um, or to do a squat. To get a bit more effort out of the quad, I'd be doing, and I comfortably do isometrics at 90 degrees and 60 degrees. We know the ACL starts to get some strain in it between zero to 30 degrees of um, knee flexion. So at 90 and 60, we're far, far away from any, any potential harm to the surgical graft. And then from four weeks through to 12 weeks, we know between 90 and 45, we know we can swing that leg up and down safely without having any harm or ill effect to the surgical graft as well. And we can do a tremendous amount of work to the quad. After three months, we know biologically the ACL has gone through its vascularization process. We know it's you know, really strong and united. And we know now we can start adding some load through full range, which will only make that knee strong and robust. And then we just gradually add load after that. So yeah, I shake my head sometimes when I hear some of these stories that have, you know, these messages and these avoidance messages of knee extensions are still hanging around, unfortunately. Um, And and yeah, hopefully we can keep banging the drum to say they're safe, effective and and very important ultimately. 
Well, it's a nice way to put it when you say you're putting more load through it walking, so that should hit yeah. home. Yes, now, that's right. To finish up with, last thing, someone comes to you for pre-op advice and you decide that surgical intervention is probably the best way to go, yeah. but they can't come to you for their rehab because they live in the country, let's say. If you can only leave them with one critical tip for their post-op rehab, what would mm. it be? Yeah, good one. Um, get the quads on. That's um, quads, yeah. quads are king, quads are queen, depending if you're male or female uh, or how you look at it. But quads, quads are really, really important. And I think that's where as long as you've got a strong quad and you've got a quad that's functioning nicely, you, you're going to give your knee joint and your knee health a really good chance of having a good outcome. And for someone that can't come into, a, you know, even if they live you know, out in the country, they live on a farm, they can't make it into their physio or the gym, you know, a few times a week or come and see us in the city or whatever it is. That's what I said, that very simple sitting on the edge of the bed doing knee extension is going to do a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's going to help keep the quads on. It's going to help with the range of movement. It's going to help dissipate some fluid. It's just going to keep them hanging in there and keep their knee hanging in there until they can get some regular physio attention or some move on to some more aggressive exercises later on in the piece. So that would be my hot tip for anyone yeah. that really struggles to get into a physio clinic. That's great. Mick, um, look, thanks very much. I know we've gone a bit over and I appreciate your time. And as I said, the stuff that you've done with Randall has been unbelievable for us as physios and, and you're always free to put your information out there, which is which is also incredible. And I think it's a good idea if anyone um, wants to see some great exercises and reminders in action, your social media stuff is brilliant. So do you want oh, to just give that man. a quick plug to finish yeah sure thanks uh, mate. Well, Anthony, it's been great to have, have you know be here today and thanks for having me on uh, importantly um but yeah anyone that's yeah on the social medias on instagram it's mickhughes.physio on facebook it's mickhughes.physio on linkedin under mickhughes i've got a youtube channel mickhughes.physio funnily enough um on twitter <laughs> as well if anyone's on twitter it's a bit different it's mick w hughes and then uh yeah so there's there's plenty of um social media options there not on tiktok and i don't ever think i will be so don't <laughs> searching on tiktok for me i won't get on that i'll keep that to the young ones mate but yeah there's there's plenty of options there for anyone that's uh, on any of those social media platforms to check out some of my stuff that i share yeah look that's great mick and look thanks again so much for uh giving your time to um all of us physios and all of our patients it's much appreciated pleasure anthony thanks very much man i hope for some uh yeah physios and clinicians and patients have got something out of today's chat mate yeah i'm sure they will have um thanks very much mick thank you Well, that's it for episode 23. And what an amazing opportunity it was to speak to such a legend in our physio world, a guy who's changed our management on ACLs possibly more than any other person. It's such a devastating diagnosis to receive, uh, that of an ACL rupture. One minute you're out there playing sport unrestricted and the next you're potentially facing 12 months on the sidelines. But there is hope and it's not all doom and gloom. Hopefully we've covered everything you wanted to know in these two episodes about ACL injuries. As you've heard in both the episodes, our thinking on not only ACL rehabilitation, but simply whether you actually should have the surgery has changed a lot because of the incredible advancement in knowledge and research that we now have to use. And I'm sure there's heaps of great points and tips that you've all gained from listening to Mick. There were a lot of great tips, but for me, my take-home points were probably two. Firstly, 
If you've got an ACL injury, make sure you see a good physio that regularly deals with ACLs, like we all do here at SSPC. The physios really need to follow the latest up-to-date evidence and research regarding ACL injuries and rehabilitation because it has changed a lot. The processes have changed. So finding a practitioner that's up-to-date is really important. And secondly, strength is key. So it doesn't matter whether it's pre-op strength, early rehab strength, mid-rehab strength, late rehab strength, it doesn't matter what phase. You have to have a good progressive exercise program that's based on sound principles of strength and loading. And this program actually needs to continue long after you've successfully returned to sport to reduce that risk of suffering the injury again. And if I can add one of my own points that I use for all my ACL patients when delivering the nasty verdict, It's use your rehab to come back bigger and better than you were before the injury. So your focus obviously needs to be on your knee rehab, but you can absolutely make sure that you come back stronger, fitter, faster, more agile, whatever it was that you may have needed some work on. This is the time to devote to your knee and an aspect in your sport that needed some development. You can turn a negative into a positive and come back a better you. So that's it for now. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to having you on board for episode 24.